Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today we're going to talk about a common sense approach to clinical suicidology. And this is coming from David A. Jobs. As I shared with you before, I attended a mental health workshop, a two-day workshop put on by the Mental Health Academy. And they had these different speakers come in who were experts or people who had lived experience with suicide talk about suicide and different approaches of suicide prevention. And one of the webinars was a common sense approach to clinical suicidology. And we're going to talk about how to manage acute risk, why safety plans are superior to contracts. And then we're also going to get into, uh, just going through my notes, oh, the best treatment for suicidology. And then we're going to wrap up with how to follow up. How do, if someone goes into a treatment facility for suicidology, what are the best practices to ensure that they are safe after? So let's get into it. And like I said, these are notes that I took uh, from David A. Jobs, and I'm, I've linked to the Mental Health Academy uh, in the show notes. So if you want to go in and take a look at it, I think it costs 10 to $20. I do it every year just to get the the credits and to make sure that anything that I'm presenting to you is current research and information and knowledge. Um, and and also just the fact that it, the information does continue to evolve and change and grow. So I'm fascinated by it all. One of the things that David A. Job shared, and I'm just going to, I'm going to go in order in, in terms of how he shared it was, that 15.6 million people think about suicide. Uh, out of that 15, 1.5 million attempt. This is a, a key statistic in that we see there's a, a, a 10x difference between people who think about it and people who actually attempt it. And this does not mean one, that we don't take our thoughts and our ideations seriously. Uh, but what it does mean is it, it it's, a, it's a, on some level, it's a sign of hope that the thoughts that you have, it does not mean that we need to act on those thoughts. This is a, a clear reminder that we can have thoughts about many things and not take action on them. I have thoughts about writing a book and I've not written uh, well, I haven't. I have written a book, but I just haven't published it uh, yet. But so to remind ourselves that our thoughts are one thing, and it doesn't necess, uh, it doesn't dictate action. They are thoughts. Um, but also, the other key highlight to me is we're not alone in our suffering. We're not alone in our pain and the pressure that we feel in the inflammation, uh, the, the feeling of isolation and uh, you know, whether we feel deflated, whatever those feelings are. We're not alone in any of that. There's 15.6 million people who have reported to think about it. So that means 
there are many more, right? Because not everybody's going to admit that these are thoughts that they have for different reasons. You know, they're worried about their job, their image, uh, and so on and so forth. So, but 1.5 attempt, that 10x difference is key. The other thing that he brings up is how to manage acute risk. And I love that he broke this down because there is acute risk, meaning that someone right now is in the, in the act of wanting to end their life, right? They have a plan. They're talking about it. And so he said we want to look for, we're looking at signs of someone who's at acute risk, someone who can uh, end their life at any moment, um, you know, finding out, are they going to harm themselves in 24 hours? Do they have a plan? Have they written a note? Are they pacing? Are they feeling irritable? Are they thinking that it'll never get better? And, I, you know, I, I've had to talk a few friends off the ledge. And when I look at this list of what acute risk looks like, they displayed all these symptoms. And fortunately, they are still with us. And um, But the pacing, the feeling irritable, it'll never get better, that kind of black and white thinking, all of that was there, and they had a plan and a note. Um, but fortunately, um, I know one in, in, uh, in particular who I, you know, was really, I actually uh, called the cops uh, on this individual. Uh, that person went, to, the cops didn't take him in, but eventually somewhere down the road, the person got clean, went into rehab, and now is, is you know, living a, a different life. It's headed down a different path. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, but if we are in that space, and I've been in that space, I'm assuming if you're listening and you've been in that space, some of the things that we can do uh, is to take a, a quick walk, uh, watch friends. And this is, this is coming from him. Play with our dog. Uh, think about... Think if you have kids, think about your kids, think about your anchors, the people that it would impact and affect. I think sometimes when we're in that space, we think they wouldn't care. Uh, they'd be better off without us, that kind of thing. But, you know, that's just us assuming. We don't, we don't know. We nine times out of ten haven't directly asked them how they would feel or how it would impact them if we were no longer around. We are just piecing, taking, you know, coagulating pieces together of information and inferring from that that they would be better off without us. Um, but So we can also call our therapist, a coach, call 988, go to a hospital, call 911. Uh, these are things that, that we can do. And playing with the dog it seems like such a small thing, but I found that um, it, it, it just did a podcast with someone else and that's going to air, but the dogs present a non-judgmental space. I think that's why we love dogs so much. We can say anything to the dog and the dog doesn't judge us. It keeps showing back up. We can do anything in front of the dog, and the dog's not going to judge you. It's not going to look at you with shame or guilt or, 
or any of that is just going to keep being your dog. It's going to keep showing up. Um, and, and I've had a number of people, and you've heard on this podcast, people who have thought about ending their lives and they then they go, oh, but who's going to take care of my dog? Um, so that, that dog is is very vital to our to our life and our well-being or, or just talking to somebody. And that's what I realized even with therapy. We're not really paying for advice. We're paying to share our what's going on, our internal experience, our emotions, our thoughts and all that, and not feel judged for it. That's what I'm, I'm really paying for. Because, you know, if I've talked to my mom or my dad or anybody else, um, wow. Well, my dad's passed away. But, you know, it, it's just... You try to open up to people, and, but your fear is that they're going to judge you or not treat you the same or look at you differently. My therapist treats me the same every time. Now, I know that there's some, not all therapists are great. You know, you got to find the one who uh, you feel safe enough to open up to and, and share with. But, but yeah, to have that non judgmental space. And, and I think in, you know, future episodes, you're going to hear me refer back to that. Um, the other thing that he talked about in terms of a common sense approach to clinical suicidology is that the safety plan is superior to a contract. You know, I remember when I first was, I think when I first started this podcast, I may have talked about, I think I talked about having a, a contract. But the research shows that contracts don't work. And a contract is basically signing a piece of paper saying you won't harm yourself. Um, but, you know, when our amygdala, when our brains are hijacked and that amygdala is in overdrive and the prefrontal cortex has been shut down, we're not, no, my signature on a piece of paper doesn't mean anything. You know, um, if I'm not going to be here, I, I, don't, I don't care. If you sue me, all right, I'm not going to be around. So the, the suicide contract has been deemed ineffective. What is effective is a suicide uh, creating a safety plan for those moments where you do feel like you're at acute risk. And so a plan, what's beautiful about the plan is it's something that you would come up with uh hopefully collaboratively with your therapist or with a coach or, or with some uh, professional that you can look at and go to when you're at acute risk. Because when our brains are hijacked, we're not, we forget, we forget what our tools are. We forget how to, it's almost like um, when you're driving and you know how to drive, but if someone jumps in front of your car or you hit a patch of ice you didn't see it coming if you don't have a plan for how to respond or react in that moment then you could easily uh you know hit the person and or cause a a major accident or, or lose your life in that moment but if we have a plan like i know if i hit a skid of ice and the car starts to spin to the right, then I turn into it and take my, I take my foot off the accelerator, don't put my foot on the brake, and just turn into it and allow the car to spin in, in, in the spot. 
But if, if you don't know what the plan is for those acute moments, then you're going to hit the accelerator, you're going to slam on the brakes, you're going to turn. Instead of turning into it, you're going to turn away from it and all those different things. So it could be a complete disaster and one that could be avoided. So when we have a safety plan, what is that going to include? One is going to include our triggers and warning signs, right? What causes you to feel emotional pain? And how can you tell when those feelings are starting to become a problem? The second thing on our safety plan is coping skills and distractions. How can you work through your problems? What can you do to take your mind off of the things that are bothering you? Whether that's playing Wordle or a crossword puzzle or calling a friend or taking a hot shower. What are your coping skills? What are your distractions? And then three, uh, social settings. Where can you go to avoid being alone? Whether that's a farmer's market or uh, the grocery store or a late night Walmart. You know, what social settings can provide you with an outlet or means of temporary escape? Maybe even go to an escape room or to a baseball game or a museum. But somewhere social, a coffee shop, where can you go? Hang out at a hotel lobby. Where can you go where it will give you an outlet, a feeling of escape where you can just kind of chill or people watch or, you know, do something else? The fourth part of the safety plan is what friends, family, or others do you trust to ask for help? Like, do you have a list of people that you can call in that moment in my phone I put in when I put people in my phone I put them in as a friend as a fan as family as um, uh, uh, help as you know like I put I have these different monikers for people so that if I am ever in those uh, moments that when I have those acute moments I know exactly who I can reach out to, talk to, and, and call. And then fifth on your safety plan is our professionals. Who would you contact during a real crisis or an emergency in terms of your therapist, coach, uh, sponsor, uh, accountability partner? Who are these people? A medical doctor. Who are the people that you would contact during maybe your lawyer? I don't, you know, I don't know what you got into. But who would you contact during a real crisis or an emergency? Um, and then six out of seven is safety, uh, making sure you're in a safe environment. You know, do you know where your safe space is? Uh, what do you need to avoid or remove it uh, to keep it a safe space for you? So does that mean we have to put the gun in, in a lockbox and, and give that lockbox to someone else? Do we need to, uh, you know, have you be away from windows? What is a safe environment that is going to reduce your, the impulsivity factor? And then the last part of our safety plan uh, is having a list of reasons for living. That's right. What motivates you to keep going? Who or what do you care about the most? And if you're a person who's like, I don't care about anything, nothing motivates me. Here's the question to ask yourself. Typically, when people think about ending their lives, there are 
you know, they like, hey, you can have it all. Take everything that I have. There's typically one or two things that are hard to give away or that you want to be intentional about. You're like, I really want this person to have this thing. If you have that, then that is your reason to keep going. For instance, if you say, I really want my brother to have my jersey. Well, now we know that the jersey and your brother are two important things, maybe one more important than the other, but now we have two anchors. We have two things, two reasons to, that, that for you to keep going, and we've identified two things that you actually care about. And so we can use our, our suicidal thinking to actually help us identify what we care about. Um, and also, you know, according to David A. Jobs, he shares that instead of saying guns uh, with individuals, to say firearms or lethal means. He said guns uh, can have, a, that the language matters, and guns, people become very protective of guns, but if we say firearms, it has a, it's more accessible and people are, are more willing to listen and also to turn it over, right? Um, but if you say gun, they're like, are oh, you not taking my guns? But you say firearm, they go, oh, yeah, it is a firearm. Like there's something that it creates a little space um, in their emotional attachment to it. Um, going into treatment, what is the best treatment for DBT? Uh, or uh, for uh, people who have suicide ideations, or for those of us who have suicide ideations. He says dialectal behavioral therapy is is proven to be the best uh, through research. Um, if you're not sure what DBT, uh, it really, so DBT or dialectical behavioral thinking involves embracing the idea that is Seemingly opposing perspectives can coexist and be integrated into a balanced and cohesive understanding. The, this principle encourages clients to move away from black and white thinking and embrace a more nuanced, flexible perspective. And so this idea that two things can exist at the same time, it's like I can want to end my life, and I can want to live my life. Both of those things can exist. And so how do we integrate those two? Like I can hate my job and love my job. Um, I can be, uh, I can be, uh, you know, what was it? I can be a God and I can be a worm. I can be both of those things. Like They're not mutually, nothing is mutually exclusive. You know, according to physics, um, the opposite is also true. So whatever you believe, just know that the opposite is true. Like if you say, I love you to somebody, well, the opposite is true. And the opposite of love is indifference. So there are parts of this person that you love, but there are also parts of that person that we are indifferent to. Is is just how it is. Um, going back to the best treatment for suicidal uh, ideations, DBT or dialectal Dialectical behavioral thinking is number one, followed by CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, 
And then he goes into mentalization-based therapy, attachment-based family therapy, collaborative assessment, uh, and that is it. And so what's beautiful is he said that when people think about ending their lives, 25% of it is related to relationships. So most people, well, most people who want to end their lives, it has to do with relationships, whether it's a loved one, a friend, maybe even a coworker, but it's a relational concern. And then behind that number at 22% is misery and distress. And that can be linked to so many different things. And then at 12% is vocational, their job. And then uh, at 12% also is self-related. So, you know, this 25% is fascinating because I'm sure there's overlap between all four of these. But the idea that it's relational concerns, it's our relationships, it's the people that we talk to or don't talk to or want to talk to or that we meet, the people in our lives. And, And so I think when we think about ending our lives, this goes back to supporting Thomas Joyner's idea that, you know, the, the, the two reasons why people end their life the most are because they feel like a burden or they feel like they don't belong. And so the fact that m- most suicides are um, rooted in relational concerns, it supports that. So look at your relationships and ask yourself, all right, this relationship is not the way I want it to be. And, you know, to be aware of what part is under your control and what part you have to let go. I just read this book, Stray, by Stephanie Dandler. And her parents, you know, they had money. They put her through private school, very expensive private school. Um, But they were both addicts. And so she spent her whole life trying to get love and acceptance and uh, support from her parents, but they were too far off into the drugs. And at some point, she she just kind of had to meet them where they were at instead of trying to get them to be her parents. She had to recognize that that window is kind of closed. You know, um, she's going to have to parent them because then they had uh, some health issues and medical issues and and, and things of that nature. And it, and it pained her, so, but she is coping with that by, you know, writing about it, talking about it, and starting her own family to get that love and and acceptance and support that that she wanted from her own from her parents. Um, so there are solvable problems or a way to at least reduce the pain and uh, pressure and distress. Um, according to David, he also says that uh, we're looking for three consecutive sessions of managing suicidal behaviors and thoughts. I like that idea of three consecutive sessions to, to know that this person, um, to know that you are um, stabilized uh, and secure, and then we can move on to some life-promoting, life-building uh, strategies versus before when you were in acute stage, we were just trying to, we we're trying to get you back to zero, back to neutral. Um, 
and now we want to build on top of that. And then, you know, as I as I shared with you, I, w- I was going to tell you how to make your stay at a psychiatric care facility um, beneficial even after you leave. And this is more on the uh, treatment facility, but this is something you could take uh, a part of also or um, take action on also, which is they found that when these institutions did a follow-up, either with a caring letter, a postcard, a phone call, an email, a text, a home visit, anything, if they did that within one to four months for uh, for five years, then that greatly increased the likelihood that that person would remain stable and continue to build a life. Um, So I, as I listened to that, I was like, you know what? I haven't really reached out to people who've been on my podcast. You know, I've asked people to really open up and share their stories of courage, strength, and hope and, and, and really take us into some vulnerable places um, and I was like, oh, I, and so I did that. I, I reached out to, um, and I, uh, like 90% of the people, some people I didn't have their email for some reason, but, uh, but it just made me want to follow up and say, hi, hello, you know, really, th- and really thank them again for being on a podcast. And, uh, and it was been amazing because people are responding like, Hey, I was just thinking about you, man. This is so cool. And, you know, and they, they want to come back on and, so, you know, if there are episodes that you listen to with guests and you're like, ah, I really enjoyed that, well, stay tuned because I'm going to have a lot of them back on. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of fun because I, too, like a, a follow-up. You know, like if I if I hear a story about someone, I want to know, you know, where they are now. It's just like when you watched, um, you know, we watched the sitcoms as a kid and then, you know, 10 years later, where are they are, where are they now? Or 20 or 30 years later, where are they? Where's the cast from friends now? What are they up to? That kind of thing. So we're going to do the same thing with this podcast is, you know, bring back some of the, 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 the old characters and, um, and see where they are now, see how they're coping now and, and thriving or what their current challenges are. Um, so we can, you know, once once again, all grow together. Uh, if you found some value in this episode, please share it with one other person. Just one other person. Take seven seconds. Share it. I appreciate you for tuning in. Um, you, if you want one-on-one life coaching, go to Thrive with Leo. Go to my website, my website, thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling a 988 or any of the international phone numbers that are listed in all of the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. And once again, you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together.